We're going to start things off talking about workers on strike. So from metro workers to dock workers to liquor store workers, it feels like this is kind of the beginning and what's been being talked about as the summer of strikes in Canada. Are we setting a precedent for other industries to keep following suit? And what is really going on in terms of so much labor dispute? Why are so many people really unhappy in their positions? Let's get into it right now with our first guest of the night, president of the Canadian Association for Work and Labor Studies and associate professor of political science at St. Thomas More College at the University of Saskatchewan. Charles Smith is joining us. Charles, thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. Hey, Chelsea. Good to talk to you. So, okay, we're hearing job action and labor dispute all over the place. I think the first one that really got a lot of attention was the BC port strikers um, making headlines at the beginning of July. So they've now reached another tentative deal. Take us back, if you can, Charles, to sort of the beginning of this strike. It was estimated to be costing the Canadian economy about $500 million a day. Uh, So really big deal here. What was what was the issue or the main issues here that forced these workers to strike? Well, like most strikes, the number one issues were wages, benefits. And in this particular case, there was a, a real big discussion about um, automation uh, and the dock employers, um, you know, sort of um, pr- proposing not just contracting out, which is a big sticking point in the latest contract, but also automating a big chunk of the future work, which had a lot of, I think, workers very concerned. Automation has been a, an issue in our economy forever. Um, workers are always sort of at the forefront of having their jobs sort of automated or being the threats of automation. So that was part of it too. I think we've kind of hit a perfect storm here, Chelsea. We've got, you know, post pandemic cost of living, uh, rising, uh, interest rates going up, uh, workers falling further behind new automation and new technologies being sort of implemented into various workplaces. And all of this is you know coming together and we're seeing more and more labor disruption because of it. Yeah, I think, you know, the conversation around automation and the fear that arguably most people, I think, have in their positions thinking is, is some form of automation going to replace me or some amount of my workload is a real concern. I mean, that's, that's very valid. It suggests to me that we're going to see more of these strikes having to do with that aspect of their job and that real threat to knowing whether or not they actually have any security. Do you think the same? Absolutely. And I think it's going to face a lot of workers where labor movement in Canada in 2023 is strong, and that's in the public mm-hmm. sector. I think we're going to see more and more questions about things like, you know, chat GPT and AI actually replacing knowledge workers in a way that maybe a decade ago, those workers wouldn't have been fearful of automation in the same ways. Your listeners might recall the PSAC strike that happened uh, in the spring. That wasn't over automation, but it was over an issue. One of the issues, not just wages, but was also uh, working from home. Right. So the changing nature of workplace uh, and workplace relations has certainly been at the forefront of some of the struggles we've seen recently. So shifting workplaces, squeezes on um, um, compensation, cost of living, inflation, post pandemic, all of this is leading to a perfect storm, I think, and why we're seeing more job action. You know, I think there's there's ebbs and flows in most industries and, you know, the labor force as a whole. Right. And so I've read about strike waves that have happened in the past, Charles, in the 40s was one, the 70s was one. Is this something to really be nervous about or is this just sort of a normal part of the way that society approaches work? Sometimes there's just something that breaks and there are a lot of strikes. Is that what this is or is this different? So in both of the examples you just gave in the 1940s, you were uh, dealing with the war economy and the post-war economy and post-war insecurity. 
In the 1970s, we're dealing with high levels of inflation and real fears for people's jobs and a cost of living squeeze. And, um, you know, we're seeing many of those same conditions, obviously not a war economy, but certainly cost of living, high inflation, these squeezes are happening. I think there is something happening here. I also think we're seeing a lot uh, of precarity, right? Workers really nervous, falling further and further behind. I think the metro strike is an example of workers who were told, you know, not that long ago, hey, you're really important and vital to keeping everyone safe in times of crisis, Mm -hmm. as we knew during the pandemic. And now it's like many of those workers can't even afford the food on the shelves that they're stocking. Um, And I think, you know, those messages, you know, we were being told, like, we're putting our lives on the line. Wait a second. These companies are doing really well. We're not. What's going on here? And I think that's resonating as well for a lot of workers. So the Metro grocery workers is sort of the the biggest or newest, I guess, big strike that's taken over. So there's about 3,700 members of this um, Unifor Local 414. They went on strike on Saturday. They walked off the job. And this is being described as the largest in this union's history. So this is a really big one. It affects 27 metro locations in the GTA. Are the issues here different than what we just discussed or sort of the same part of the same conversation? Similar, right? Wages, uh, full versus part-time, ongoing automation in the grocery store. I mean, all of these issues are at the forefront. I don't think automation is at the forefront of that particular struggle. I do really think it's wages in that context, but we're seeing more and more of that work um, you know, being going part time, uh, workers, you know, not being paid, you know, in, in a way that they can afford the food on the shelves. Like, I think many workers in that, that sector are just falling further and further behind. You might remember, Chelsea, that during the pandemic, a lot of gro- big grocery store employers gave these workers like a bonus, uh, like a COVID bonus. They squeezed all that back uh, as COVID was declining. Um, so there's been a lot of bad faith in that in, in that sector between the employers and the workers. And I think that's part of the dynamic that's leading to some of this job action. I think workers are kind of just fed up um, well, with how they've been treated. Especially when grocers are still making a premium. It's not as if there's not money to be made in that sector. So it feels it feels like there's a lot of corporate greed at play here from the from the very top. Does this does that play that, into that, some of this? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you out there. Yes, absolutely. That I mean, Metro made almost a billion dollars in its last uh, earnings reports over that year. And I mean, this is a very profitable country. The, the grocery sector in general has been very profitable, uh, especially since COVID. We've seen prices really increase, and I'm sure your listeners can relate. There's been a, you really feel the, the cost of living at the grocery store almost almost daily, right? And I think that that narrative is that way. What's going on here? Is this just supply chain issues? Or is, that, is that what we've been told? Or is there actually some price gouging going on here? And I mean, listen, I think the dynamics and the pricing in the grocery sector are complicated, but they certainly think there's a narrative that is happening that feels like people are being squeezed. And I think this is part of that dynamic. You know, I think anytime we talk about anything to do with groceries in this country, you know, it sort of makes our ears perk up because I think that we are, we're really nervous about what grocery prices are going to do next. We've been paying so much over the last several months. Inflation has been a big part of that, gouging to some extent as well. It's a different conversation for a different day. But what's at stake here, though, Charles? Like, how is this grocery strike going to impact Canadians? So that's a really good question. It's a hard one to answer. I think in the short term, I don't think most Canadians will see a major, uh, you know, squeeze at the, at the grocery store. I mean, I think if you don't like metro prices, you can go somewhere else. But I do think that um, in terms of the dynamics of like who's responsible for the cost of living, I think a lot of people are going to, there's been a lot of narratives that, well, it's the government's taxation that's pushing these narratives. But on the other hand, like there has been, I think, an underlying sort of murmur that, wait a minute, there's a lot of really wealthy people that are doing really well and a lot of people who are not. 
who are not very wealthy. And I think that dynamic is certainly on the table. That conversation has been on the table for a long time, but I think it's been made worse coming out of the pandemic. And, you know, you have the Bank of Canada raising interest rates and suddenly everything's more expensive than it used to be. And we're all falling, not all, a lot of us are falling farther behind. I really do think that's the bigger impact in terms of how Canadians are going to sort of see these kind of disputes. And sometimes when strikes happen, there's a back and forth about who's responsible, you know, it's the, is the employer being greedy or is the union being greedy? But I think right now the Canadian public and polls sort of saw this is that the Canadian public is on, behind in defending many of these workers on strike because they understand why they're happening. Now, who knows? That could change. But I think that people sort of understand, hey, we're falling behind. We're just trying to keep up. And right now we're not. And I think there's some sympathy there. I mean, even when the PSAC went on strike, polls were showing Canadians supported that struggle, which is difficult in a big national public sector strike to win that kind of public support. But they did. Teachers have been struggling. They've got some public support, healthcare workers. So we're seeing, I think, a shifting of the conversation at the national level. And that actually does, I think, put some wind in the sails of workers struggling as well. Yeah, I've heard a, a lot of my coworkers talking about using food banks and and my myself, like I said, I've been 25 years with the company. I live in geared to income housing because I can't afford market rent anywhere else in the city. It is very frustrating because day to day we have to deal with the customer. Like I work in hot food and I mostly do like the cooking and everything. And it's a total pressure. And to hear that they're making all this money and, you know, they don't pay us enough. You know, all we are asking, just give us a little bit more, a piece of the pie. We help them to make this money. So we deserve better. That's two Metro grocery workers uh, who walked off the job Saturday, part of 3,700 members of the union that decided to take job action. We're talking about it with our guest, who is president of the Canadian Association for Work and Labor Studies, Charles Smith. Charles, thank you so much for sticking around on hold. Really appreciate your time tonight. No problem, Chelsea. Happy to be here. We're talking about the Metro grocery worker strike. Um, there are a liquor store uh, strikers ta- happening right now in Manitoba. There's, of course, the BC port worker strike. It feels like there are so many of these. Do they actually accomplish what they intend to? Or does everyone just sort of end up a little bit unhappy and bitter when these actually do reach an agreement? You know, strikes are really complicated processes. I mean, in Canada, it's really complicated to go on strike. You have to go through so many loopholes uh, that are set by labor codes in various jurisdictions. Um, so often they're, they're a, a valve, a pressure valve that let, let, is released. So sometimes they can actually be really beneficial for workers to actually raise their voices in a way that they, they haven't been able to in the past. And I actually thought it was really interesting that voices you were playing uh, on your clip there, Chelsea. I mean, one of the things about sectors like grocery, like the big PSAC strike is, um, you know, our economy is not an, a fair or even economy. There's a lot of unevenness, a lot of inequality. Women workers, we know, make less than male workers. I mean, it was interesting to hear uh, women voices from your clip. I mean, often women are at the bottom of pay scales, even in unionized sectors. So the fact that women workers are leading some of these strikes is also really important to recognize and actually can be uh, a positive thing to sort of really struggle and, and try and change the dynamics. But on the other hand, you know, if you lose strikes, it can be really demoralizing. No strike is guaranteed a victory. Uh, so workers could end up falling further behind. So it really depends on the local dynamics, about the power dynamics. But, but I think in the context of what we're seeing now, when we see just the cost of living and high inflation and people feeling really squeezed, this is a way for them to push back and fight back. And I think in some cases, it can, it can be really positive. It's not always negative, I guess, is my point. <laughs> Which is a nice, refreshing stance to take when we're talking about (laughs) labor disputes. You know, Charles, you kind of touched on it a little bit there, talking about the voices that we heard in that clip and sort of trying to wrap our heads up around who is taking job action. 
what are some other industries that you think might be next to take job action based on that, based on who we're seeing strike and who feel who feels that they're being treated unfairly? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I mean, you look at some of the big public sector contracts that are coming for negotiation in various provinces. You know, the teachers in Ontario uh, in collective bargaining, teachers here in my province are up for bargaining. So you could see more and more uh, public sector uh, demands, given that mm-hmm. governments in periods of high inflation are also going to be struggling with the same kind of cost, uh, raising costs and interest in their debt and so on and so forth. So you might see more squeezes there, and that could lead to more job action in the public sector. The Canadian labor movement in 2023 is heavily concentrated in the public sector. The, it, like in the U.S., the private sector numbers have been falling for a long time. So we usually, if we're going to see a lot more strikes in Canada, they're going to be in the public sector. And that, will, of course, will bring the public into the dynamic in a way that private sector strikes don't often have the same public sort of spotlight on them because they're usually local and, and not really gathering the national attention. Although I think the port is a different one because it so much goes through a port. But sure. nevertheless, I, that would be my prediction. If we're going to see more strikes, we're going to see a lot more in the public sector. Well, then it sounds like uh, we will have more to discuss on another show. Charles, thank you so much for your time this evening. Really appreciate your insight. You bet, Chelsea. Nice talking to you. Right now, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite, defense spending. This conversation has really come to light because an American senator from Alaska, Dan Sullivan, last week, had some pretty strong words about Canada's defense spending. And it sort of shines a spotlight on the way that Canada is perceived by other nations and other allies. The clip is worth hearing for context. So let's hear what the senator had to say. Canada is not even close to its 2% commitment. And it was common knowledge that Prime Minister Trudeau was trying to water down the villainous commitment to 2% as a floor, all of which is incredibly disappointing. You can have discussions with the Canadians and say, hey, look, when you're not supporting NATO, when you're not supporting missile defense for North America, it's actually harmful to the alliance. Americans get frustrated when our allies don't pull their weight. They're not very good at paying for missile defense either. Okay, so some strong words, some strong opinions there about the way that Canada falls behind other countries uh, in terms of how we pay for defense spending. So that 2% is... 2% of our GDP that we are required to pay to remain part of NATO. Now, we are not paying that full 2% yet. Is there an appetite to do that here in Canada? Let's get into it with someone who knows all about this, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary and Senior Fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute, Rob Hubert. Rob, thank you so much for making the time. Always good to talk to you. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about what this Alaskan senator is discussing here, because he's sort of talking about two different issues, um, NATO spending and NORAD spending. Let's start with NORAD. Are we up to speed in Canada when it comes to NORAD spending? No, we're not. Um, it's, It's not spending per se. It's what we're doing to, sorry, my dog's a, a little, you've heard a, heard <laughs> you know a what, Rob, dog. it's relatable to oh. most of us, so it's yeah. okay. Anyway, and of course, she picks right now to bark, but uh, anyway, um, the problem with NORAD is that we haven't stayed up to date for modernization. I mean, you can talk about spending, but it's really at, at the heart of it is that there is a recognition by the Americans of the increasing threat to North American aerospace, and we haven't modernized. Uh, we've talked about it. But the last real substantial modernization of the NORAD system was back in 1985. 
And so you can appreciate, given the changing nature of what the Americans or what the Chinese and Russian threat now represents, why the Americans have become so particularly concerned about this issue. And so it's a question of, and this is the one that the Americans are the most sensitive about, is vulnerabilities to North American homeland. And so as a result, this is why people like Sullivan and others are not afraid to publicly criticize Canada, because it's no longer just simply being a good neighbor. It's where the Americans start believing that we are the weak link in the homeland security issue. Well, and that's what I think is so alarming or interesting about this clip is that it really does kind of give you some idea of the way that we're being perceived. Is this something that we should be looking at as a threat from this Alaskan senator? Does this create some tension between our relationship with Canada and the States? Well, the, the, the simple answer is yes, of course. I mean, to put it into context, we've heard this before from the Americans when, when they feel that we're not pulling our weight. And the 2% is often utilized as a means of sort of saying, okay, we have to meet that 2%. And it almost becomes sort of a a number onto itself. Uh, One of the things that you have to appreciate is that during the period when we were heavily committed to Afghanistan, both under the Liberals and the Conservatives, we didn't meet the 2% at that point, but we didn't hear these criticisms because the Americans had an appreciation that we were pulling our weight. We were doing alliance maintenance. We were there. And so anybody who sits there and says, okay, well, Sullivan's just hung up about the 2%. Well, you know, he might be with Sullivan. You never quite know. But the real problem is that the Americans have moved from this understanding that ultimately we are there. We share their values. We will do the heavy lifting when necessary, even if it doesn't get us to the 2%. But that has all, of course, disappeared because, I mean, you look at what we're doing now. Um, You look and, and you can't but help but think that a lot of our defense actions are performative. Um, yes, we are committing to the, to the NATO commitment in the Balkans, and we have committed troops to that, though. You know, reporters such as Murray Brewster and others have reported that a lot of it is, is, is more sort of like, okay, we have the numbers there, but we're not really giving them the equipment that they need. And so the real problem is that when the Americans start thinking we're not doing enough, like I said, the 2% is the target, but that's not really what we really have to be fearful for because we're changing into an environment where the geopolitics of the Russians and the Chinese capabilities are becoming more dangerous, hypersonics, Mm -hmm. all types of weapon systems we can get into. The other problem is that we have a series of American political elites now that have no connection to Canada. We've always had that special relationship because the Americans that we knew always understood Canada. They got Canada. Well, the DeSantos, the Trumps, one can even add a Biden. There's not that that connection. And as a result, Mm -hmm. the moment the Americans start thinking that we're just another country that's not doing its share as opposed to the special relationship, that's when it starts spilling over into other effects. Don't expect any types of favors from the Americans if they think we're just another country and that we're leaving them vulnerable. That creates huge political security problems for us in the near future. Can we comfort ourselves by taking this with a little bit of a grain of salt? Who exactly is this senator? Is he credible? Is is he himself credible in this criticism? 
Well, he's a long-term Republican. He, uh, you know, by Republican standards, he's actually viewed as a moderate. Uh, but he <laughs> pays attention to the the Alaska, Canada, NORAD connection. So he's very well informed when it comes to issues of security relating to the Arctic region. And so, in that regards, you know, his his voice is heard, um, and 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 represents something that I do think that we have to pay attention. Does he have undue influence within the government? I mean, who can tell who's got undue influence within the American government at all today? But the fact that he has said it, and the other thing you didn't play in your clip is that he made that statement when the the American system is is quite different from ours. When they appoint senior political uh, military leaders, they go before Congress. They have to be they have to explain what they're trying to do. Whereas, of course, in Canada, it's simply the prime minister's discretion. The prime minister gets to do it, and normally nobody even knows who our chief of defense staff is, let alone having public hearings. So the Americans have this process. The person that they were questioning is taking over NORAD. This is the person who's replacing General Van Herc. And so this is somebody who is a very critical military figure to Canada. And so if you have a, a senior senator grilling you on whether or not you think Canada is pulling its weight, that's where some of the problems also emerge. I wonder, you know, without the ability to prove ourselves um, in any other way besides focusing on the money and that 2% that comes up in that clip again and again, would increased spending make a difference, at least in the in the relationships that we have with some of our allies, in this case, the states? Well, we have to show that we're serious. We have to show that we understand that there is a changing nature of the threat posed by the Russians and the Chinese. We have to show that we get it and that we're willing to act in solidarity with our allies. Yes, people will say, well, isn't that what we're doing in the Baltics? And, and that is. But the answer is we need to be doing a lot more of that. We need to be shown that sort of like we don't make defense procurement decisions only on the basis of politics as opposed to security. And just as we did, and once again, it was both the liberals and the conservatives who did it, so they both deserve credit. When international crises occur, such as Afghanistan, you have to be willing to, 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 to uh, play your role. And, and, and that is something that we don't seem to be seeing. And it's not just the Americans. I mean, you look at the fact that the British and the Australians did not even think to include or want to include us in the OCTES uh, discussions. I know I just mispronounced that, but it's the discussions about getting Australia a nuclear-powered submarine, but it goes much deeper than that. We're not party to that. And there's a whole host of other issues that are showing that the goodwill that Canada had had by being such an active NATO and NORAD player in the past, the commitments to Afghanistan, the commitments elsewhere, basically people have forgotten. I mean, history in, a, in 225 gets you a cup of coffee, right? That's the old cliche. But this is the problem. We're not doing anything. But I wonder, you know, it's almost a catch-22. I don't know what the the public's appetite would be for increased spending or increased focus on defense here in this country. I mean, it, it goes all the way down to decreased interest in military participation here in this country. So, I mean, this is a big layered problem with without a real clear I, answer. I don't think I agree with that, actually, because we have seen when we have increased defense expenditures, when we have political elites that explain what is the problem, we go back to the period between Pearson and, and Baker in the 65s. We go through the period 
when we see the efforts of the of the Kretchen government to to modernize, say in terms of the frigates and that. If you have a government that actually explains what the problem is, you do get a receptive audience. I mean, here in Alberta, of course, you can turn around and say, you know, you're never going to get receptive to the issue of environmental security. I don't know how mm-hmm. true that is. But look at the narrative that has now been created. You know, this government has made a major policy element of always talking about environmental security. And I think that carries weight with Canadians. You do get convinced. And so if you had political elites saying, look, Russia poses a threat to us because of its aggressive nature, or China's threat to Taiwan and elsewhere is a a threat to us. And we had that narrative told again and again, the same way that we get the narrative on climate security, I think that Canadians would be willing. We have in the past. Um, The problem is we don't tend to get those narratives till it's too late. And as a result, we end up having to spend more than we should. We have little say in how that is, uh, how that is spent. And, and basically it's the worst of all roles. So I do think that if we had political elites that were honest with us in terms of the nature of the international environment and did not fully expect that, don't worry, be happy, the Americans will look after us, that Canadians would be. And, and it's never really been put to the test. I mean, do you, can you, can, you know, I don't have any example where someone has said, okay, we got to spend a little bit more on defense where that has caused electoral defeat. What it does do mm. is people may have a collective yawn and that may not gather votes, but conversely, it hasn't necessarily shown that it has defeated votes. And so that's, that's part of the problem. We simply don't know in the modern era. Do you feel, Rob, like any of the political elites um, that you see right now, whether in power or fighting for it, are, are pushing that narrative? of needing to talk about the fact that we do have ongoing threats to this country and defense does need to be a priority. Do you have optimism that those conversations are happening or will happen more frequently? Well, I mean, I I follow within the news, the debates and, and, you know, the focus is on, on, on other issues within Canada. And that's, you know, the reality is that's that's where you're going to get the vote. So Connor tried to do a little bit of that, particularly in terms of the Chinese threat. And I mean, there 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 there's some that are suggesting that that caused the Chinese to specifically target him. But nevertheless, when the chance came to vote for him, that particular narrative didn't seem to do that particularly well. So. I don't know what can it, you know, once again, we're locked into this system. We think that the Americans will ultimately protect us. We know in terms of how Canadians think it's not necessarily a vote gatherer to start saying, yes, we're into dangerous times. And so the immediate uh, payback is, is, okay, I'm going to improve the economy. I'm going to bring social justice. I'm going to, I'm going to save the environment. Those are the narratives that people seem to, to respond to. And so we're locked into the system. Could we have someone come forward and say, yes, we do face a security threat. Yes, we do have to respond. Yes, we better do it sooner rather than later. Uh, could that be created as a, as a powerful political narrative? Well, it's working in Germany. It's working in Poland. It's working in other countries that are sort of more immediate to the threats that we're talking about. Um, but once again, I think in Canada, we have the false sense of security because of being neighbors to the U.S. and because of geography, which, quite frankly, hypersonics don't pay attention to geography, unfortunately. 
So you've mentioned a few times, you know, the ongoing threats and the real threats that Canada faces. So I'm hoping you can expand on that a little bit. You know, we talk about countries like China. We talk about countries like Russia. How real is the risk right now for our country? Well, once again, you always get a little bit of your own personal gestalt in this, uh, because there'll be some people that say Russia just is responding to the immediacy of its borders and is not a real threat to us. Um, same arguments about in terms of China. The problem that what we've been seeing in both China and Russia are, are threefold. Uh, first of all, they both states have made it very clear that they no longer accept the Western focus system, the rule of law, whatever you want to call it, uh, that they see it as an ultimate competitor to them. So there's a whole series of statements that both Xi and Putin have made over the years that makes it clear that it's going to be problematic in terms of any cooperative behavior. The second thing is the type of weapon systems that they have spent huge amounts of money. Um, the Russians from 205 onward have been developing a series of military capabilities. And I'm not necessarily talking about what we're seeing in utilization in the Ukraine, but rather in terms of its nuclear delivery systems and nuclear weapons, and the Chinese are similar. And what, what I think scares a lot of analysts is that a lot of these weapon systems can be characterized as offensive, and it raises questions, well, how are these two countries thinking about that? The third thing, and it applies more for Russia than it does for China currently, and that is the behavior. And what we've seen within China, Russia is this increasing use of military force to respond to territorial disputes. Now, you start with the, with the Chetnian crisis that they had. They were quite successful in making the narrative that the Chetnians were all terrorists, but it was still about keeping them within the territory right when Putin comes to power. When Georgia starts talking about entering into NATO, that is when the Russians engineered a war with them. Once again, the narrative there was, was, was something publicly differently accepted. Nevertheless, it, they stopped the Georgians from joining. And when the Ukrainian war started in 2014, it was also because there was a change of government in Ukraine that seemed to be orienting itself to join both the EU and NATO. And so we see an increasingly aggressive Russia to the states on its borders with these new weapon systems, with public intent. And that is what has led many people to suggest that we're seeing a much more aggressive, not just simply mm -hmm. um, problematic. With China, the weapon systems are even greater. They are now the second largest military in the world. They have the largest Navy in the world in terms of numbers, not the best Navy. That's still the American Navy. Uh, Rob, they are modernizing everything. I know Sorry. we can keep going on on this, and, and the threats could be a conversation we could have for an entire segment another day, uh, but that's all the time that we have. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to talk now about a new term uh, that might have you really concerned or might have you rolling your eyes, global boiling. So this term is now being thrown around because the UN Secretary General last week said that we have entered an era of global boiling. It sounds really scary. He says the era of global warming has ended, and now we have to get ready for this new one. Here's what he had to say. Climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. So your reaction to this one, I think, might be dependent upon where you are 
in our country. If this is something that you're listening to and thinking this is just a buzzword, I'm sick of hearing about this, or yeah, this is really alarming and we need to take this seriously. Let's talk about what global boiling means and what this could look like for Canada with our guest who's a Texas A&M climatology professor and Texas state climatologist, John Nielsen Gammon. John, thanks so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. No problem. Were you surprised to hear this term, global boiling, or is this something that people involved in climate study have been kind of hinting at and talking about for a while now? Yeah, I thought I had to do a double take to make sure it wasn't global bowling, which would have been <laughs> a lot less concerning. Um, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a new one for me, but it's, you know, the trouble with climate change is it's such a slow process that 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 people have to sort of come up with new new terms to catch people's attention because otherwise it just sort of creeps up on you. So are you of the opinion that this is just a a woke buzzword or do you think that this is a fair way to describe the state of our climate? Well, I kind of hope that it doesn't catch on as a buzzword because obviously we we, we aren't seeing the oceans boil and they're not going to boil under any conceivable scenario. So it's it's obviously hyperbole in that sense. Um, but, you know, in a, on the other hand, warming is such a mellow, pleasant sounding term that doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't really suit the situation very well. So I can understand where he's coming from on it. I just, I don't, I'm, you know, it's not a very, it's not a supportable choice from a scientific standpoint anyway. So let's talk a little bit about the evidence and what global warming has looked like. So the way that I understand it, and I'm hoping you can clarify this, is that the global temperature has risen about 1.1 Celsius since the 80s, right? How much of that is normal warming and how much of that is us contributing to it? Yeah, it's about about 1.1 degrees Celsius since, uh, say, what we call pre-industrial, maybe you know, before the beginning of the 20th century. And... As best we can figure, it's mostly man-made. Um, the the sun has increased in intensity a little bit. Mostly that was the beginning half of the 20th century, and that maybe contributed a tenth of a degree or maybe two-tenths. Um, volcanic activity isn't dramatically different now. That can, can have an influence, but doesn't seem to have had much of an effect over the long haul. So uh, scientists are pretty confident that that most, if not all, of the of the warming we've seen since the beginning of the 20th century is due to man-made influence. Greenhouse gases causing an increase in temperature, um, part, particulate pollution, aerosols would cause a decrease by themselves, but as it is, it's just sort of mellowing the increase a bit. So when we think about the pace that we're on now, has that accelerated then? What are the projections and what's the trajectory? Uh, it's it hasn't accelerated much over the past couple decades. I mean, things were, temperatures were fairly flat from the 50s to the 70s because basically at that time, the the, the particles that were blocking sunlight were were counteracting the the effect of greenhouse gases. Uh, the problem is as, as we clean up the environment, as we, you know, into the pollution controls primarily in the, in the industrialized world, uh, that cuts down on air pollution. Uh, but it, and and so particles sort of rain out of the atmosphere very very quickly. So we can clean up the air in that sense, but 
greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, hang around a long time. So basically, since about the 1980s, we've been on a fairly steady uh, upward trajectory of of about uh, 0.15 to 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade. And that doesn't really show any sign of changing for the next couple decades anyway. So I, I guess that leads me to my next question then, John. Can our actions mitigate it enough? to the point that we actually can make an impact and actually slow things down. What what kind of efforts would that look like to really get a handle on this? What we've done, I mean, we, you know, we're constantly improving energy efficiency. We've started having large-scale uh, wind and solar power generation, although not nearly enough to, to be actually causing reduction of emissions of greenhouse gases. So... Uh, probably hard to measure at this point. Maybe one could argue for a month of a tenth of a degree of an impact so far, which isn't a, a big deal. Uh, but as presumably as technology improves and the costs come down so that you don't have to uh, go to renewables out of the goodness of your heart, but can do it because you save money that way, uh, mm-hmm. that's when we might start seeing uh, bigger impacts. It's going to for probably the we've, we've we've got good quality wind and solar. But probably the biggest technological innovation we still sort of need is energy storage. Being able to to take energy that's generated during the sunny part of the day and be able to use it at night and be able to do that on a large national scale. Uh, but if we can do that, we can we can make a dent in things. The trouble is, it's it's not until basically the second half of the 21st century that becomes noticeable. It's the difference between, uh, say, two degrees of warming by the end of the century and, or, or four degrees of warming, which does is a big deal, but you know, it's something that our, our, our grandchildren really will either thank us for or blame us for, depending on how it turns out. <laughs> you know, I, I think you touched on something really interesting, you know, kind of way, this idea of waiting around for the technology to catch up and for costs to come down. And I think a lot of people kind of have adopted that mindset. And I'm not trying to generalize here. So if this isn't you, I'd love to hear from you. Of course, you can send a text into the show. But, you know, I, I think change is really, it's hard to adopt. And when it comes to thinking about these widespread changes that we're all having to make, I think that's where you get met with resistance. Do you feel that there are people that still are resisting the, the even the idea of climate change? Well, I think a lot of people are. Um, in Texas, we, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Republican state, and pretty much uh, the majority was, was not really believing that climate change was much of a concern until we had a, a major drought in 2011, and then, cost about $10 billion uh, just from that drought alone. And that sort of got people's attention. And then Hurricane Harvey in 2017, which which dropped uh, well over a meter's worth of rainfall in the Houston area, um, definitely got people's attention. Uh, they're still not openly talking about climate change in general. They still prefer to call it weather variations or things like that, but there's there is this general awareness that the future weather is going to be different from the past weather, and we we have some idea of what direction it's going in, and and we can at least, at, at the very least, uh, do what we can to to adapt to what's happening. If if not, um, you know, try to reduce the magnitude of it. 
the challenge is you know you, you can adapt locally um, but mitigation reducing the magnitude of climate change really takes things happening on a global scale and that's where it gets difficult to say ah you need to do something uh, but what about the six or seven other billion people in the world and you know it, it becomes this massive moral issue massive issue with equity and it, it, people don't want to think in those terms so it's easy to just keep on doing what we have been what do you think then is at stake here you know you mentioned extreme weather events i think here in canada we can relate to that as well in alberta we had uh, you know an unprecedented wildfire season in nova scotia they've had uh really dangerous and damaging floods is it more extreme weather situations in the immediate future is it something else um in the further future what what do you think is really um what we need to be considering here it's gonna be you know, different depending on different locations, in a sense, in terms of uh, local climate change impacts, because no, there's no place that has an ideal climate. So things are, things are, uh, and and climate change isn't going to make an ideal climate. But what it does is it gives you a climate that's somewhat different from what you're used to, what the infrastructure is designed for, and so forth. So, for example, we've got, um, you know, extreme rainfall is increasing just about everywhere around the globe. So places that were, uh, you know, considered to be safe from flooding, some of them are no longer safe from flooding. We get more intense downpours. And so that's the sort of thing where there's a small impact on on most people, but dramatic life-changing impact on on a few. Um, Increasing temperatures, that's that's one where there's, there's... it really depends upon how how homes are set up and so forth, whether you've got widespread use of air conditioning or not, as to whether you can whether you can get you know, survive without much impact of increase in temperatures during the summertime. I mean if you do, of course we mentioned the the, the terrible wildfire year we're having this year. Wildfires are expected to become more common because the higher temperatures dry things out faster and you know it the the vegetation belts like the the, the beds of forest that sort of light up along different latitudes those are projected to move northward as the climate warms because they're trying to find their ideal climate but they don't move by you know trees don't move by growing legs and walking north basically <laughs> They, they they can expand north through seeds and so forth, but when their habitat to the south is unhandled anymore, what happens is they start dying and become beautiful wildfires so that this change of, of ecosystem locations is also catastrophic for men. John, thank you so much for making the time tonight and uh, and for sharing all of your, your knowledge on this subject. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care. I know of multiple colleagues of mine that got physically injured, and uh, the activity. And I got to by by UAPs or by by people within the the federal government. Both. Okay, so there has been activity by by alien or non non human technology and or beings that has caused harm to humans 
Uh, I can't get into the specifics in a, an open environment, but at least the activity that I personally witnessed, and I have to be very careful here, because uh, you don't, you know, they tell you never to acknowledge tradecraft, right? So what I personally witnessed myself and my wife was very disturbing. Welcome back. That's David Grush, a former government official uh, who has worked in the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office and asking the questions, U.S. Representative for Missouri, that's Eric Burleson. Uh, this all part of the congressional hearings that took place last week, uh, where three whistleblowers, including David Grush, testified that the American government has been covering up knowledge of UFOs, UAPs, and non-human entities since the 1930s. So welcome back. We're talking all about aliens and how we got to the point of having congressional hearings about a potential alien discovery cover-up. Uh, my name's Chelsea Bird. I'm your guest host tonight for a little more conversation. And there is a lot of conversation to be had around this topic. So let's get into it right now with our guest, who's a professor for world arts and cultures at UCLA, David Shorter. David, thanks for making the time. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you inviting me on. I think this conversation is fascinating on so many different levels. And, you know, I want I want very much to believe that there is something <laughs> that provides us some proof that something has visited our our planet. Um, but I don't know if I can get past some of the doubts that I have and some <laughs> of the logic that, <laughs> that plays into this. I, I hesitate to fully believe that a, a cover a cover up could have taken place because Government employees, David, are just humans. And I just don't know that a secret like this or a cover-up could be carried out by mere humans, especially those holding office. But I wonder where you stand on this. How are you approaching this conversation as a whole? Let's just start there. Well, it's mixed. I mean, I'm, I'm a professor of the social science who literally looks at how to research and collect data and then make interpretations of that evidence. Hmm. But I'm also a historian of science, and I know that what counts as evidence has changed over time, and it changes based on culture and definitions that are community-based. And then on a third level, my father worked for top-secret level of U.S. government uh, con contract groups out in the desert of New Mexico. So since I was a kid... A lot of what we were hearing in this congressional hearing was absolutely, you might want to say, um, reverberating with what I remember as a kid. Vans parked outside the house, uh, people threatening my father's life if he talked to people. Our phone lines always tapped. And he was doing reverse engineering of crash site material. So I'm, I'm sort of in this mixed position where I do want to follow the evidence, but I also want to be really clear that the evidence shifts. So you say that the government might not be capable of pulling such a thing off. Well, in my classes on aliens at UFO and aliens and UFOs at UCLA, we cover the Tuskegee experiments, where the government tested dangerous medicines on African Americans. We look at their involvement in Latin American governments. The government actually is capable of hiding some of their activities, and this okay, would be David. a perfect subterfuge. Let me just let me just put my jaw back together here because I'm so excited learning about your own personal experience here. And now you've pulled me back into the conversation where I feel like I can now be a believer. And this just got a lot more exciting <laughs> and a lot more fun. <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit about how we got to this point in the first place, because you talk about evidence okay. shifting and evidence looking different. There isn't really any tangible proof here and you can you can argue that point if you'd like to but i'm I'm just wondering that without that how did we even get to the point of having a congressional hearing why why now right well that's a very good question i think it goes back actually to like 2017 there were navy videos that were leaked um by the new york times 
And one of the things that ended up happening is that it really raised questions on a congressional level of who's actually keeping these reports of the phenomena. So the Pentagon formed a group in the U.S. to detect and identify those objects that are in restricted airspace. Then jumped to 2022, there was a House Intelligence Subcommittee that sort of met on UAP. And I would say that what you see evolving now is some congressional concern that there might be um, secret agencies or perhaps funded parts of the government that are keeping information from them, Congress. And I think that I think that that's why some of this might be a little wagging the dog. There seems to be a lot of concern. It has to sort of raise for those of us who are very much you know questioning government um, impulses. Why now? Why are they doing this now? What, what what kind of money or budget are they trying to get? Who are they trying to scheme on a congressional level? But on another hand, you said. I just don't really see the evidence. I, I don't know where the evidence is. And I think that that's, that's a really key point. In my class, we look at the evidence. We look at the physical evidence, which there is some. We look at what counts in a court of law for evidence, which means including testimony. And in those testimonies, you evaluate the person's ability to actually evaluate what they saw. We have pilots. We have radar operators. We have air traffic controllers. We have police officers. We have professional um, sky watchers who perhaps you might want to call them amateur astronomers. These are not just everyday people with the reports that we have from around the world. Hmm. So you add all that up. And you may not have this thing where you say, okay, this UFO landed over Mexico City and announced it's an alien. But what you do have is hundreds of thousands of reports around the world over a period of time that seem to solidify around some common elements, and that itself is a little disturbing. And you can ask, well, maybe they got that from popular culture, like movies and such. Well, sure. some of these sightings preceded those famous movies. I, you know, I really, I want to believe this, and I want to believe that there's something <laughs> that I think can can show to all of us that there is something else out there, because you know, I think more and more over the years, I think society has kind of shifted away from the idea of talking about aliens and non-human entities, right. if we want to use that more gentler term, from being, you know, really surrounded in stigma and taboo to now, you know, kind of a mainstream totally. thought. I think the idea of our universe is so vast, and if we're the only ones in it, that's kind of an arrogant way of thinking. But I wonder then, yes. why are we not hearing more accounts than from just civilians and from people? seeing these? Why are the encounters always so mysterious right. and so infrequent? Right. Well, let's, let's, go, let's go to like the first day of my class where I asked students, what have you heard about um, aliens or UFOs? What, what, have you, what have you heard about UFO sightings in the news? Few people historically have said anything. And if I sort of told them immediately, here's all the evidence that shows that there are absolutely unidentified flying objects that are probably non-terrestrial, students would sort of be like, you know, we just got out of a pandemic, the recession, the environment collapsing, and I got an algebra test on Thursday. So there's not much I'm going to really do if you prove to me that there's aliens right now. <laughs> and then you ask them, why isn't the media talking about it? If we know that the Pentagon has an actual office that collects reportings, and since 2004, they've had 510 sightings in which they can sort of, through their own research, say, we know that 171 of these are unexplained and they actually have unremarkable characteristics like these, these I'm sorry, remarkable characteristics. That means that the office of the Pentagon has actual questions and data that would make a person go, wait a minute, 
why haven't we heard about this? Why aren't we being told this? Why isn't it in the news more? And you're right. For a long time, these people were called crazy. They were, they were literally like, oh, my gosh, what that person down the street thinks. They think they're right. crazy. How crazy is that? Right. So that's obviously a history we have to deal with. I wonder, does the public then, David, have a right or deserve to know the truth here? Is this cover-up all well-intentioned and for our for our safety? Oh, you're 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 right on the nose for what I had written about a couple of weeks ago um, in a publication called The Conversation, which is ironic with the mm. title of yours. But in the conversation, I was part of an Indigenous Studies working group, and I worked with a professor at the University of Alberta, Dr. Kim Tallbear. And we looked at how current search for extraterrestrial intelligence is part of the, you might want to say, forefront of who's supposed to manage contact. Let's, let's, be, get, let's just imagine for a moment that there's going to be contact. Who's, who's handling that? Like, right. Who should actually be coming up with developing scenarios? As of right now, it's completely military. And, and you have to ask yourself, is that what we want? Is that our best foot forward? Let's say there is contact with another species, which is always fun to think about, the, the alien, the other coming to meet us for the first time. Do we want the military response to be the first and foremost reason why we would engage them? Um, in February of earlier this year, the president, uh, Biden, here in the U.S., he gave the orders to go ahead and shoot down um, unknown anomalous phenomena that were over restricted airspace. We didn't get a lot of news reports about why they decided to do it if it was unidentified, what it was that they collected when it landed. So I don't actually think that many of us have a choice except to wait for our government to tell us what they've encountered or what they might know. I mean, it's nice to say they should tell us. Well, what are you going to do? How can you do right. I think this conversation is honestly, it's fascinating. There are so many different directions and questions that I have for you that I'm sure we could talk about for the rest of the night, but we don't have that much more time. So I want to talk a little bit about just what could take place from these hearings. So, you know, I think I look around and I see a world that's experiencing a lot of political tension. There's a lot of mistrust and I think more to come. What do you think discovery of a cover-up like this would mean? Yeah, that's a really great question. There has been a response. You might want to sort of look at the last week and what's taken place in the United States in terms of the White House. It really expressed that they don't have any resistance whatsoever to the UAP Amendment Act. And when you look in the actual fine lines, the the writing of that um, act, which is called a sort of follow-on to a statement of administration policy, it's all very sort of detailed. It's about numbers, but it's about giving permission and rights. It's giving the military the right to take over a scene, to um, do what they need to do, to handle any sort of contact that might take place, which gets back to your original question. What if we are talking about contact? What if, if, let's just imagine for a moment that we're talking about something as grand and paradigm-shifting as a culture contact. Some people will say, well, that's just impossible. That's not going to happen. But I would have, I would have said two weeks before COVID quarantine, there's no, re- there's no reason to believe that all that would happen. The week before 9-11, that that would happen. These things do happen. We do, as a society, get shocked once in a while. And if that were to happen, I think it would upend a lot. I think it would mean that a lot of people would ask questions about, um, you know, the global financial market. Do they still owe student loans back? What is the power of our military to protect us when we have sure. ships that can come from above and attack us. And what would that, you might want to say, insecurity do on a societal level? What would happen to religion and the idea that perhaps you don't have uh, uh, an almighty 
omnipotent um, uh, God or deity sure. that is protecting you. And, and also it sort of upends the whole cosmology that might, one might have of gods and angels and, you know, saints and then humans. Where are aliens in that? that it's something that would actually revert us back to like the 16th, 15th century, where they did actually question what would life look like on other planets. And they came to the conclusion that there probably were aliens. Most of the theologians, most of the philosophers did think there were aliens on other planets. The question was whether they were advanced or less advanced than humans. So do you think when it comes to these hearings, this should be something that we're mm-hmm. taking extremely seriously? Because I don't know I don't know that as a society we really are yet. What do you think it will take? Right. Yeah, I don't think we are yet. I think that it's still, as you said, very much a very subsection of the sort of media and popular culture. I think it still belongs inside the era of like folklore, urban legend. Uh-huh. I think that congressional hearings are one of those things you look at because it's showing you what your politicians are up to and what they allegedly care about. Um, it's a moment to see where the funding's going. You, you can sort of learn about there actually being large, well-funded programs and projects um, that exist in your government and what they're doing. For example, in Canada, you actually have a reporting system that records all of the um, people who've had claims of a sighting. And you have sightings there you know, police officers, 20, 30 people seeing something that just moves completely in ways that can't be understood. If you go and you look at what, how those people's lives changed, it's actually not for the best. They feel like they've been disregarded, that no one believes them. Mm. And there is no government mechanism to account for that. So moments like this, like this congressional hearing, they actually are opportunities for us to see the way as a society we've determined for ourselves who will be taken care of, or who is not going to be taken care of in particular cultural shifts. You have provided so much insight to this conversation, and I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, I want to know from your perspective, what do you think yeah. would be the purpose of any of these these visits or um, these these sightings that are taking place on Earth? Yeah. Well, I, I've talked for about 25 years now with abductees. These are more experiences. These are people who um, claim to have had contact and perhaps been taken up or received messages. I invite these abductees or experiences into my class to speak to my students so that then after they leave, we can have a very sort of fruitful discussion about what students mm. think they saw and what this person is claiming. And in the majority of those reports where people say they've been given a message, They've been told that they're coming to protect us from a certain version of a future that would include environmental collapse. And so you might want to say that there's some sort of checking in before a danger point is reached. That's one of the most common, I would say, abductees say. Now, you ask me what I think. I, I'm just reporting. I'm just telling you what abductees think. Sure. And I think that that's really interesting to do that as a maneuver, to go to the people who have allegedly had firsthand experience and see what they say. Wow. Well, I want to take your class and uh, read every article that you've written. So (laughs) thank you so much for this, David. I really appreciate your time. Honestly, you were great. Uh, Thank you so much. Absolutely. You have a fantastic program. Take care. The idea of introducing a two-tiered health medical system here in Canada uh, on the heels of a clinic in Calgary that made national headlines when it announced that it would introduce membership fees 
for its patients. So the Marta Loop Clinic was planning on running a membership fee uh, that would run $4,800 a year for a two-parent family membership. That's with two dependents as well. So the Alberta government has been cracking down on this. They say that this medical clinic has responded to its demand for a decision on whether or not the clinic will actually begin to charge membership fees as of tomorrow. Um, but they've declined to say exactly what they heard from the clinic. So that part is still sort of a mystery here. Um, the government did issue a statement from Health Minister Adriana Lagrange, as you just heard in the news at the top of the hour, saying, should any clinic proceed with the membership fee structure or offer accelerated access to a family physician, an investigation will be conducted. And this story is interesting because it could it could set somewhat of a precedent moving forward for clinics that are dealing with a lot of burnout, a lot of administrative work, and in general, uh, not a lot of incentive right now for family physicians to run their practices here in our country with just so much workload. So is this the direction that we're going? And what could this mean for Canada? We're going to get into it right now with our guest, who's University of Calgary Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law and the Coming School of Medicine, Lorian Hardcastle. Lorian, thank you so much for making the time uh, at such a, a late part of the evening. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. This conversation, I think, is such an interesting one because, you know, I think people are really shocked at the idea of having to pay almost $5,000 a year for health care. Let's just talk a little bit about the, the loophole, if you want to call it that, that this Calgary Clinic was able to discover. How is this or was this introduced to be allowed? Well, there's always been a division between uninsured services and uninsured services with patients being able to pay for uninsured services. Um, And so there have been clinics in the past that have bundled together uninsured services and and sold those to patients for an annual or or monthly fee. Um, Where this clinic, though, got into some difficulty was that they weren't only offering patients those uninsured services for a fee, but rather there were insured services blended in in that package. And and that's where you run into the legal issues. So... We don't know exactly what's going to happen. As I mentioned, that that part of the story is still somewhat of a mystery. But do you think that even though the province has threatened action on this clinic, it will go forward with this membership fee? What's your best estimation of what you think they'll do? My best guess, given the province's strong messaging around potentially auditing and imposing sanctions, is that this clinic will probably uh, back off from this uh, planned fee structure. It, it raises the issue, though, of a potential two-tiered system. And, you know, it's got a lot of people talking, I think, about what it essentially means to be Canadian and have a Canadian healthcare system. Could the idea of that type of system work, or does it just go against our ethics? The Canadian healthcare system is really premised on the basis of accessing care based on your need rather than on your ability to pay. And the idea that you would pay for basic primary care services really does undercut that uh, that uh, Canada Health Act ethos. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that as long as, as clinics are engaging in these these kinds of models, there's, there's always going to be um, pushback. And indeed, this isn't the first time that this kind of uh, model has been used. And in, in those other cases, we saw similar pushback from uh, governments, from, from individuals. 
We know we have a, a big issue of availability when it comes to family physicians, when it comes to GPs, not just in Alberta, but um, all across our country. And in terms of even incentivizing med students to become family physicians, it seems like it's increasingly hard for more and more people to want to enter into that practice for lots of reasons. Burnout being, I think, one of the main drivers. Could something like this maintain or even attract more family physicians here in Alberta or in the country overall? It isn't clear that allowing this kind of model would actually improve health human resource issues um, at all. Uh, There's no real evidence of of that. Um, I think, though, the main effect would be on patients where you would have those who are able to pay and able to, to access care and then you would have those who aren't. And we know that there's a strong link between wealth and health, and so we would really potentially see widening health disparities if this kind of model were to become common. I wonder about from the perspective of physicians, you know, in the argument of brain drain, physicians wanting to go to other countries where they can charge for their services and make more money. Is that is that reasonable to entertain that idea when we come when it comes to this conversation are we losing physicians to other countries or is canada a relatively good place to practice well canada is interesting because they do lose uh, some physicians to to places like the us but then they also draw in physicians from from other countries um, I, I think that recruitment and retention needs to be at, at top of mind for policymakers but i think there are ways of uh, attracting physicians within the public system without having to implement a two-tiered kind of system in order to attract them. So what do you think that answer is then? If it's not more money, which seems to be um, you know, bottom line for, I think, a lot of industries, then what do you think is it for healthcare? Because we've talked about burnout um, and workload being an issue for years. Yeah. And I think that those issues were exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic. I think in Alberta, we've heard a lot from healthcare workers that uh, what they're looking for is stability, is feeling valued by the government. Um, and and it's, so it's almost those, those psychological type aspects of, of practicing medicine that, that seem important. And I think that the government needs to, to take those seriously. Um, of course, over the past few years, there was a lot of tension between doctors and the government here over contract negotiations. Um, hopefully, now that that's been resolved, there's a better working relationship um, and improvements can be made to the system to make physicians' lives easier and, and to improve morale. Are you hopeful that that's the direction that we're going as a nation? I am. I am hopeful. I, I think that uh, policymakers, though, need to take this issue very seriously. Um, you know, we hear stories of ER closures and of EMS response times, and all of those all of those issues um, are symptoms of there being issues with access to primary care. Um, because when you don't have that good access to primary care, it really does have these trickle-down effects in the rest of the healthcare system. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we talk about uh, things that we've seen across the country, long wait times in the ER, it really stems from the fact that people don't have primary care. And so you have nowhere else really to turn when there's an issue. Is that is that an accurate assessment? Absolutely. And, and I think 
out of necessity, uh, due to, to COVID-19, hospitals and acute care really were the focus of policymakers, but they really need to uh, shift back to a focus on the basics and on primary care and making sure that people have access to a, a medical home, a, a primary care provider that they regularly see. Do you think even if, and we don't know the answer yet, but if this uh, Marta Loop Clinic in Calgary doesn't go forward with this fee structure, do you think that it's piqued the interest of maybe other clinics to try to do something maybe similar, maybe not $4,800 a year for a membership fee, but you know, to maybe fill that gap between uninsured and insured services with some type of a fee? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, um, we're seeing clinics that are doing more uninsured services and, and charging for those services. So, for example, you might see family doctor clinics popping up and, and offering Botox and, and those sorts of uninsured mm-hmm. services. So, certainly, um, there are some practices that are that are looking to to take advantage of those uninsured services. Um, But I think that what's happened here will perhaps hopefully serve as a cautionary tale for clinics who maybe want to start charging for those insured services, which which is where we run into the legal issues. Uh, Lorian, thank you so much for your time this evening. Uh, Really appreciate getting your perspective. Thank you for having me. This is day one of me ingesting borax. I hopped on the borax train. I jumped on the borax train. I have officially jumped on the borax train. Borax. 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 Go check it out. Y'all need to get off this train. Yeah, the borax train is the latest TikTok trend. People ingesting borax, if you can believe that. Welcome back to the show. This is a little more conversation. My name is Chelsea Bird, your guest host for tonight. Yeah, people on TikTok uh, ingesting borax. Uh, This is something that's commonly known as a household cleaner. Uh, It can be a booster in your laundry detergent. It's a pesticide for ants and cockroaches. Um, And now some people claiming that if they put a little bit of it in their coffee or their water, uh, it can have really great health effects like helping against osteoporosis or even bathing in water that contains a little bit of borax can detoxify the body. And most people I would like to assume would hear this and say, what? Why would you ever consider ingesting something like borax? But of course, it's taken over and it's become a trend on social media. Why? What is going on? We're going to get into it right now with our guest, who's a senior lecturer in chemistry at the University of Tasmania, Nathan Kila. Nathan, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, really appreciate you talking about such a wild conversation tonight. Yeah, it's certainly a surprising topic for many people. Yeah, I don't know why anyone would want to do this. It feels like maybe there must have been some nugget of truth that launched this. Why borax? What even is this stuff? So borax is a salt. It's made of sodium and something called borate ions. And as you mentioned in the introduction, it's used in a lot of household products, whether it be in laundry or pesticides. It seems to be just another trend, I suppose, that arises with social media, whether it be laundry pods or cinnamon challenges or various things that pop up, it is the latest fad, um, but potentially with harmful consequences. What would the effects of ingesting something like borax be? What does it do to you? So like all chemicals, it's always about the dose. So how much you're having and how often are you having it? Hmm. Um, I don't know of any deaths that occurred from people ingesting a quantity of borax. It doesn't mean it's safe, though. 
Um, but it can cause gastric distress, um, damage to the kidneys in the long term. And there's also some evidence around it being a reproductive and developmental toxin. So not good for people who are pregnant. I think a lot of what takes place on social media and some of the trends, at least some of the wellness trends are, are well-intentioned, you know, and something like this, it kind of makes me roll my eyes immediately because it sort of gives people and TikTokers just a bad name and a bad reputation. Why do you think things like this catch on? Is it just for views or do you think that there are people that are benefiting in some way from ingesting a little bit of this stuff? So, well, firstly, I'd say that they shouldn't ingest it. That's really the number one message is it's not, it's not a good idea. I think it's a really complicated psychology because you have the two layers. You've got people who want to be seen as influencers. Mm-hmm. If you listen to these videos, and, and we heard a little bit at the beginning, the people are incredibly confident in what they go on to describe for the product. And you know, remarkable or extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. And there is not the evidence there for the, for the breadth of claims that are being made. Um, so I think partly it's about influencer culture. I think it's about people wanting to put that across. But I think also alternative therapies appeal to a lot of people. Um, they may be mistrustful of modern medicine or they might be looking for something that's that's quick. But mm-hmm. the claims that are brought forward just don't stack up against the evidence. It seems to me that we are we're desperate for an easy fix. What should people remember or keep in mind, Nathan, when they see trends like this cropping up on social media? So the first thing is, well, it's complicated because it depends where it's coming from. But we need to keep in mind what the substances are. So one one of the things that I would like people to learn from this is to be able to look for deeper safety information. So all of these products they're using, these are not licensed or manufactured with the intention of being consumed. These are cleaning products or they're fertilizers that they're using. And all of these products have something available called a safety data sheet. And that, as the name implies, has safety data for the compound. And so just by searching for SDS, short for safety data sheet, and the name of a product, pretty much every product has one of these safety data sheets that will outline the hazards that are associated with it, precautions Mm. that you can take. Um, things that you can do if you do get exposed to these materials. So, for example, you mentioned someone saying to have a bath in borax. Borax okay. can be a skin irritant. Um, it's also used in in sort of slime-making kits for, for children. And so there has been some concern about children either not washing their hands after they make their slime kit or perhaps even ingesting slime, which is not good because of the range of ingredients that are there. Um, so it, it's really important to keep that safety message in mind and, and know that there is additional information out there for the chemicals that are in our day-to-day life. It's surprising to me that something like this that should seem obvious that it's not for human consumption, you know, maybe maybe we all just caught on to something or we all, the people that, that did catch on to this, were falling for a prank. Maybe this is someone that's on social media and they're starting this to troll people and now it's just taken on a life of its own. Could that be how this started? Yeah, I think I think it's been around for quite a while. I mean, there's there are Facebook groups and I've not been on them to see them, but that have been around for quite a while that, that come before this TikTok trend. I mean, I mentioned before the, the Tide Pod challenge. That was something that popped up and, and seemed to really capture the imagination of a lot of people and a lot of the media. But that Underlying that is a really ongoing issue. So the statistics I saw for the United States are that 10,000 children under five have to be consulted with sort of poison control or hospitals 
from ingesting these laundry pods just purely accidentally. Um, you know, these are not kids that are under five, not being influenced by TikTok, um, mm. but just the, the hazards of these things being in their day-to-day lives are, are present, are there. It seems, you know, in that case, I can sort of wrap my head around it because they do look, you know, they look like maybe they're they're like a gummy candy. They do look appealing. Sure. But in this case with borax, it looks like a chemical. It should be very, it should be very obvious. This is not something that you should that you should consume. Are you seeing other alarming trends in the area of people wanting to use cleaners and detergents and chemicals as sort of a, a, a creative workaround to their health? So uh, some of your listeners might think back to 2020, where even the president of the United States made claims around bleach that mm-hmm. <laughs> were not supported mm-hmm. by evidence. I think <laughs> I think that this is something that will always come along. And it is really people learning to understand some of those dangers. Um, if you if you're unfamiliar with chemicals, and someone appears on your TikTok screen who looks healthy, looks well, and tells you how miraculous this product is, some people will be convinced by that. And so it is a constant battle to fight misinformation. Social media companies have a really big responsibility to play in how they moderate their content. Um, so t- TikTok or other platforms should be very much aware of what sort of information is being spread. And they really do have a responsibility um, to society to act on misinformation and remove it from their platform. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, there's a there's a larger conversation to be had here talking a little bit about what we expect as users and consumers of social media from those that are in control of those platforms. And something like this should be a no-brainer to want to crack down on. But unfortunately, those videos are out there. Um, but... Thank you so much, Nathan, for for coming on and clarifying that, no, this isn't something that you should consume. Uh, We as humans aren't washing machines. We do not need to be ingesting borax now or ever. So thank you for setting the record straight on that one. I really appreciate your time and all of your insight. Uh, Thanks for having me.